0: Hello again, listeners, and welcome to another edition of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by VENT, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and as always, I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of VENT. As you may know by now, each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they're passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. On to my special guest now, and I'm thrilled to have this Jen as the special guest for the 20th episode of the Just Checking In pod. I can think of no one better to have this conversation with. He's someone I grew up both in school and... And in university, and it's been one of my biggest pleasures to have seen him take a chance in life and watch it grow into something beyond what both of us really could have dreamed. So, that man is Mr. Robert Parks. Robert, do you want to give a little booth in the intro? How are you doing, mate? Thank you for having me, first of all. Pleasure, mate. It has been a long time in the making. Schedules have taken a while to get going, Yeah, I it, think we both
1: live pretty antisocial lives. I don't know how you fit all of this around what you yeah, do. Yeah,
0: very That's hard. Well. <laughs> I'm glad that we've uh, I'm glad that we got in. I'm doing great. Mm. Um, Rob is, is currently head chef at Restaurant Copper and Ink, based in South East London. However, Rob broke into the restaurant industry through his appearance on BBC cookery show MasterChef in 2015. Rob made it to the semi-final alongside fellow contestant Tony Rod, who now co-owns Copper and Ink, alongside Becky Cummings. Um, we finally got our schedules aligned. But for the listeners who... Kind of don't know how we know each other. We actually grew up in school together. So I went to the same school that you did for sixth form, and then we ended up going to university, didn't we? That's
1: right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We go pretty way far back, back. in it. So way seven, back. seventeen. I was glad to see you've done your research though. You're up to date. Thanks on very my much, movements. mate. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent,
0: hundred percent. You've just got back from Marrakesh. Just quickly tell me a little bit about that.
1: That's right. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm doing great. Uh, you've caught me at a good time. I literally off the plane half past mm. ten last night. Um, from five days in Marrakesh, just beautiful, you know, 25 degrees and sunny every day. I don't want to rub it in because <laughs> it is particularly cold for me mm. at the moment. Mm. I just become acclimatised to a, a nicer temperature. But, um, yeah, I don't want to make a chef's life sound glamorous either. Mm. Um, which we'll probably come on to to some degree. Um, you just caught me at a
0: good time. Excellent. Um, I'm not sure at the time when we, we were at school together that we were like massively close because you were in the year above me and obviously I joined just for the sixth form so it was hard enough for me sort of getting friends in my own year group but... I think it was when we both went to University of Sussex where we sort of developed our relationship a bit more. We were sort of seeing... I joined in first year, so you were already in second year. And we just started to see each other a bit more and sort of bump into each other, didn't we? And then yeah, after yeah, that, yeah. it's really grown from there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's fair to say. I, I I remember you from school, though, for sure. I mean...
0: Uh, I mean, I was only one of ten white boys
1: in the yes, year. So yes, yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly rough. <laughs> right, I think. must have
0: been a little bit recognisable. Yeah, you need
1: to give some context uh, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. To, to Ilford County High School um, to say that, yeah, if... if I'd be in one of ten white boys in the mm. year, um, and obviously not being from a, a majority Asian background myself, which the school very mm. much was, um, you kind of kept an eye out on the... Solidarity, didn't you? There was some degree of solidarity. so yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, it's fair. Uh, it's fair to say that, you know, I, I began to become concerned that you were following me after you, <laughs> <laughs> you joined, joined me at uni. Um, Same
0: nights out, were not it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you! <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, not again.
1: <laughs> but no, we've kept in touch, which is uh, which
0: is great, and it's uh, it's nice that we can do mm. this. Perfect. So now we've got that out of the way, shall we get started? Let's do it. And we can play games because we are swell Let's get straight into it, Rob, and start with our first topic, which is how mental health is perceived and sort of treated in the restaurant industry. Now, you wrote an article about this on vent right when vent was first starting out called boiling over so if anyone hasn't read it i'd highly recommend going back through the archives to read it and we'll put a link in the description of the pod um first of all what was the inspiration behind it and for those who haven't read it what issues does it discuss i think for me it was really
1: important to
0: sort of strip back the
1: hollywood perception of the restaurant industry that Mm. sort of marketed um in programs you know that most probably feature Gordon Ramsay to some degree Mm. um Jamie Oliver all the TV chefs yeah yeah exactly um and and sort of drill down into um how working in the industry can affect one's mental health Mm. uh based upon the experience and it was to be fair only brief experience that I have had you know I'm not a seasoned uh, line cook. I'm not a veteran mm. of the restaurant industry. I was sort of thrust into it after MasterChef and never really saw myself getting into that environment. Um, but I guess it was, it was largely prompted by just seeing what you were doing with them mm. and that exposing me to, to question the environment that I was in at the time. Mm. Um, and just put pen to paper, um, and see what came out. Uh, and it's actually interesting because I think we'll look at it in two lights uh, over the course of our conversation, thinking about the restaurant industry and mental health will be what I was talking about specifically in that article mm. and then everything that I've gone on to learn and the new insight since then. It's only been probably, what, a year and a
0: half? About that, yeah, I'd say Since, so, yeah, I, yeah.
1: since I wrote that. Um, but a lot for me has changed in the way that I think about um, mental health in the restaurant industry and I've got a lot of new insight, which hopefully people will find uh, interesting. Mm.
0: At the start of the article you, you tell a story about when you were right at the start of your journey as a professional chef and a colleague called Janos, is that correct? Is that yeah, 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 Janos, yeah. So just tell the listeners about that story and what happened, you know, set the scene for me and, and then tell us what went down.
1: I was I was actually quite hesitant about including that story at all mm. because it, it to some degree undermined uh, my ideal of not Glamorising mm. the culture of bullying mm. and not playing up to the sort of megalomaniacal head chef mm. um, that you see presented on telly, but it it did prove a point, and for me was like a a, a real flashpoint in considering how the environment can affect people's mental health. Mm. Essentially, what happened was um, uh, during a busy lunch service, and I'd only just started out at this point. I mean, i would probably a couple of
0: weeks in. So very new. Very. Mm. As fresh as you can get, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. pretty yeah.
1: much. And, and not having come out of catering college where I'd done, you know, a couple of work placements here and there, you know. I, so you hadn't been exposed to it? Not, not in the slightest. My only previous restaurant experience was the day that we did in you know, a professional yeah, kitchen yeah, on yeah, yeah. MasterChef, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that in itself was just a, uh, completely overwhelming Um, But, yeah, I'm I'm just sort of busying myself in my section, working my checks. Um, You know, you don't really have time to focus on anything external to what you're doing necessarily. Mm. Um, But (laughs) you couldn't uh, help but avoid this. Yanis, who'd been on the hot starter section, I was on the cold starters, so we're sort of working together, Um, had a a chilled courgette and basil soup. I'll never forget this. Um, Really vivid... Uh, memory of exactly what we were serving, he had a, a chilled courgette and basil soup um, that was finished with a Brazil nut pesto. Mm. Um, really nice, really tasty. I must say, actually, the food that we were serving at the time was was great, and it was a great place to learn. Um, but he, everything that left the kitchen had to be checked by the head chef. Um, you know, regardless of how busy everyone was, you know, he his eyes were the last. Uh, before it left the kitchen everything had to be spot on and Janus uh, had left this pesto um, off of this uh, particular soup and so he sort of uh, <laughs> quite forthrightly uh, told him that he had uh, left it off and um, asked Janus to pass over the pesto so that he could put it on himself Janus mm. passed over what he thought was the pesto and what actually turned out to be Salsa verde for a different dish. Mm. Um, Might not have been the biggest issue in the world had it not been for the fact that he'd been putting the salsa verde on all of the soups through service and the salsa verde had anchovy in Mm. what should have been a vegetarian dish. Mm. Um, So the chef has the salsa verde come over to him, he looks at it, he sniffs it, he says, What's this? He only says, That's the Brazil nut pesto. He said, No, that's the salsa verde. Possibly a few F-bombs in there mm. uh, along the way. And threw it. And it hit Yanis square in the chest. And I, I saw this whole thing unfurl. And I couldn't believe it. I'd never, never seen anything like mm. that. Just in shock. Yeah, I was yeah. in c- complete complete shock. And he w- head to toe in just like green... Oh, it wasn't just like a small thing chucked out. Oh, it no, was no, literally no. like the whole no, confection. No, it, it was a big... Big, big old vat. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. Vat, vat might be hard. Uh, a big bowl. Might be a bit hot yeah, yeah. but you know, it's, it's
0: enough it's, to cause, cause damage. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: damage, damage has been caused, and he's standing there with this uh, uh, salsa verde all over him, and he, he just very quietly left the kitchen, changed his apron, changed his chef whites, came back in, and continued service. Just like nothing had happened. Like nothing had happened, yeah. and it was insane, and it was never spoken about.
0: It's <laughs> so weird to think that just happens and everyone just goes, oh, okay, carry on.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it, it wasn't it wasn't a big thing at all. And I, I should stress that actually, even though it was, you know, two or three weeks into what turned out to be quite a long time that I was working there, I never saw anything to that degree again. But it it did underline to me, you know, the unspoken hierarchy of the kitchen, but also the fact that, you know, the, the head chest power is unchallenged, regardless of the mm. physical or mental abuse that you can sustain. Mm. And I didn't actually ever speak to Yanis about it. And perhaps in hindsight, I would have. It never even crossed my mind to at mm. the time. Um, but I'm of no doubt that that leaves an impression on you.
0: Mm. In the article, you, you, you quite rightly call out this this, this bullying behaviour. But... I think a lot of people see shows like Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares or Hell's Kitchen or, you know, all these sort of other parodied almost shows now uh, and think it's an actual, an accurate reflection of what the inner workings of these top restaurants are like and perhaps the norm. But in your case, two weeks in, your stereotypes are almost confirmed in your own head. You know, what was that like seeing? something that you thought might have been only what you see on TV to actually start happening then?
1: Um, It was interesting. Um, It sort of, it cemented those ideas that you have in your mind and it kind of made me accept the fact that I was getting myself into an environment um, that I had some perception of previously and actually everything that happened afterwards kind of slowly undid that initial... Uh, shock and mm. actually the pressures and the stresses are entirely different to how they're made out to be mm. um, on telly. But certainly at that point, it sort of uh, mentally it, it made me feel like I had to buckle down mm. and, and get my head down, and that things were now serious. And you're quite right, you know, it was it was completely outrageous behaviour um, that that just shouldn't uh, that shouldn't happen. And I I would say are real anomalies. Mm. actually in in how restaurants do function
0: Mm. and we should point out that this example doesn't reflect the entire restaurant industry but it it is something that seems to happen perhaps not more often than people think but uh, does it occasionally happen um you refer to this in in, in this example uh, in the article as a representation of how extreme pressures can affect chefs working in restaurants and their mental health just tell me a bit about what you meant by that
1: yeah i think um it doesn 't reflect the whole industry, what it does reflect for me um, are some it, it was a bubbling up of various mental and physical pressures that exist in the uh, in the restaurant industry, not to justify it by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, you know I would never act in such a way and I have no doubt that if I were to speak to the head chef now he although he quite honestly probably wouldn 't remember it he also uh, wouldn't be wouldn't be proud of it and probably wouldn't justify either Mm. um but the 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 pressures of working in restaurants um are uh, are certainly there I'm always conscious of sounding like a martyr there's Mm -hmm. no martyrdom in a kitchen we cook food for people and hopefully they enjoy you know Mm. I'm not a doctor or a policeman um my mum works in social services she's a foster carer Mm. um for 25, maybe 30 years. Wow, okay. Um, and, you know, though, for me, that is what I consider to be emotional stress and pressure, and, and that takes its toll over a long time. Kitchen pressure is different. Mm. Um, for a line chef, the work is long. You're working long days, most often what we call doubles. You'll be in at 8 o'clock in the morning. Um, in a lot of the top restaurants, you won't leave until midnight, um, possibly 1 o'clock. Um, that's often without any kind of real break possibly or still 15 minutes to eat some food mm. um,
0: it's very gruelling yeah,
1: yeah absolutely You know, it, it, it does take its toll it's, it's physically demanding it requires a lot of focus as well so mm. you've got the physical demands and then you've got the mental demands as well mm. um, you know the better the restaurant you work in the more precision is required mm. in the job under more pressure absolutely yeah absolutely and it's dedication very time pressured as well um, you know things are needed well, timing in, is everything things isn't it? are needed yeah. immediately yeah mm. absolutely timing is, is the most important thing that you learn as a chef and probably the biggest difference mm. between you know a great home cook and, a, and even a good chef you know you need to be able to work to time mm. um, but then you know that's, that's for the line chef you know that's the people cooking the food on a day to day basis but then you add the business aspect um of the industry that takes its toll on your more senior chefs, your head chefs, and your sous chefs, um, you know you're trying to make money on very, very tight margins, mm-hmm. um, and all of these things do do take their toll, definitely on on your mental health, and mm-hmm. uh, are all things that chefs should probably f- spend more time considering and contemplating. But then again, you know your time pressured, you're working long hours, you're um you're not really socializing in any um conventional or healthy way mm. um so you know so t- to find the time to you know maybe think about how things are taking their toll on your mental health it- it's not something that i think many chefs
0: find the time to think about mm. in the article you you present this juxtaposed image of this jekyll and hyde type character whereby this chef who who chucked the the vat or the or the soup over um, the the, the Val verde what was it called Salsa verde, Salsa verde, Salsa, verde sorry. Salsa verde um he chucked it over him whereby he's a bit of a monster in the high pressured environment but outside of it he's this lovely kind family man was it hard for you to adjust to this sort of extreme and contrasting behaviour and, and navigate that within a professional environment and uh, as I'm sure it makes someone pretty impossible to read
1: yeah it. It did. I'd I'd say initially, um, it, it only made sense for me to see him as some kind of totalitarian, authoritative dictator. Um, you know, the air in the kitchen would literally change. I hate saying that. They wouldn't literally change. It was mm. still it was still oxygen and nitrogen. Um, but but it, it it felt palpably different mm. when he entered the kitchen. You know, everyone was immediately more tense mm. um, and on edge. And you could you could tell when someone was going to get it. Mm. You know You felt it brewing. Yes. Yeah. yeah you could you could really feel it brewing in the end. You weren't always sure of why Mm. you know um, whether sometimes things were brought into the kitchen from outside Mm. and it became uh, a a release Um, in that way I'm not sure I I couldn't I couldn't say to that degree Um, it certainly felt like sometimes that was possible Um, again super high pressured um, environment but over time getting to know him more closely as I did you know as I rose up the ranks in the kitchen and the The nature of our relationship changed. It was incredibly difficult initially uh, to reconcile the idea of this person that I'd seen as a complete dictator at the beginning to be, you know, a kind family man. Um, and it was always interesting to see his demeanour when his wife, who very seldom was in the kitchen, popped in, I think maybe over the two and a half years I was there she probably came to the kitchen twice but his whole demeanour would change Mm. Um, you know and he'd show you pictures um, of his pets um, you know and he was was quite loving and affectionate um, in that way and that was quite difficult Mm. to reconcile Mm. Um, so yeah it it did paint this Jekyll and Hyde image Mm. um, but initially I just saw him as a monster
0: Mm. We both know that, that mental health doesn't discriminate by how much success you've achieved, by social class, gender and all these other things. You talk about a few examples in the article of chefs that exemplify this this breaking down of a stereotype, so to speak. You know, Just talk me through them and, and, and some of their stories and, and some of them are quite tragic in some examples.
1: Yeah, super, super tragic. Um, I guess there's sort of two really prominent and very similar examples that I talk about in the article... Um, I speak about a chef called uh, Benoit Voilier, who was a hugely acclaimed chef, you know, he probably carried the title around of the world's best chef for several years Mm. um, at the start of this decade, um, working at a hotel, uh, Hotel de V, Uh, I think it was in Switzerland. Um, but someone fact check that. I don't know if you've got a team behind you uh, fact, <laughs> che- <wish>. fact, checking, <laughs> fact checking anything I say. Um, otherwise, I'll get carried away. But um, you know, we shouldn't laugh because it's it's really a really serious matter. Um, mm. He he killed himself uh, from a gunshot wound in January of 2016, mm. um, and that followed a, a similar story of Bernard uh, Loiseau, um, who shot himself in 2003, um, the night before the Michelin guidebook was revealed for that year? Oh, yeah. Suspicion. That is, yeah, yeah. 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 Real heavy stuff. And um, the suspicion was he was about to lose his third star and drop down to two.
0: And he knew that as well. That was the suspicion. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, we can only speculate. But yeah. That yeah. Seems you never, be, you yeah. never,
1: you never, you never know the guidebook's results until they reveal them. But, um, they have a quite they have a closer relationship with you know their their premier their premier, and that, their premier yeah, chefs yeah. Um, and and that was too much room and it's not it's not just about accolades and it's not about esteem and your perception when it michelin can be about livelihood you know
0: mm, if you lose one or you gain one it's yeah. going
1: from going from none to one you can change the prices on your menu overnight Mm. overnight you can add probably about thirty or forty percent to the price of everything across the board.
0: Because it's the clout, It's yeah. the reputation. Yeah yeah absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah.
1: Everything goes with that. But you know those are huge examples of really prominent chefs. But in the last uh year well, coming up for a year now since we opened Copper and Inc. Um my the nature of my relationship with my team, with my brigade, um has changed and you know, you take on the responsibility of uh Managing everyone's mental health, Mm -hmm. you know, that's something that I really consider to be important in the way in which we do things. And um, we have, obviously, without revealing any personal details, uh, dealt with a chef that suffered from um, some quite severe mental health issues. Mm -hmm. and um, Sort of negotiating that in a work environment was was really tricky. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's something that, for me, needs to be done more frequently um with chefs in kitchens you know Mm. we need to be making time to look after our chefs Mm. and make sure that they're looking after themselves
0: really important to me Mm. Uh, and talking more widely about the industry and the mental health of those within it their work-life balance you know how they navigate it and the industry more widely what evidence is there to say to say that those within it might need more support
1: um Yeah, I I sort of delved into this a bit when I was doing research for the article, and there's a market research company called Mintel um, that did a little bit of uh, exploration. Um, And they said that 54% of hospitality workers said they struggled to find time for any social life. It's over half. It's quite a lot. It's over half. It's quite a lot. And I would actually say that those figures are probably an understatement, to be honest with you. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find any chef that said that they had adequate time for a yeah, social exactly. life unless
0: they're like a big time chef that can just yeah. delegate and all that yeah yeah, yeah
1: absolutely um, and 45% of those that they surveyed uh, said that they found it hard to take proper care of their health that's across the board that's both their mental and their physical health mm. um, and 50% of people said they worked more hours than contracted as well and oftentimes, uh, speaking from experience that work is unpaid mm. as well And and so that
0: so what you sign up for and all that sort of jazz. yeah the,
1: yeah yeah uh, i think I've, i I think that the first contract that I signed um, in the kitchens my my contracted hours were not quite in so many words as many as we need you to work mm. that was the contract um for a set um, for a set salary um and so you know there is there is an aspect in which, you know, you're signing yourself over to the demands of the kitchen.
0: Mm. You talk about a monoculture in the article that develops in the restaurant industry when it comes to sort of after-work activities and how chefs try to switch off and maybe escape from this pressure cooker, pardon the pun, environment. Um What did you mean by that? I won't pardon the pun. <laughs> that's that's, that's, that's <laughs> terrible. Um
1: But, it, yeah, I think... You work such unsociable hours that, you know, hanging out with anyone that leads any kind of normal nine to five life comes, yeah. is quite difficult. Um I my my friendship group um all do live relatively nine to five mm. lives, certainly mm. uh more conventional office-based jobs than me. And so I was quite fortunate in that I would always maintain that social circle outside of the kitchen. But that's not something that's afforded to everyone. A lot of people move, uh, you know, quite considerable distances to work in the best restaurants. A lot of people that work in restaurants in London have come from overseas. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of people from uh, within the EU. Lots of Italian, uh, you know, Spanish, further afield, um, and so they come here without that established social base. Or the those networks, those yeah, exactly. Groups, yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. All the time
0: to to bed them, to, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. To,
1: to, to make them for themselves. So you hang out with the people that you spend all of your time with. Um, you know, the restaurant, uh, the restaurant becomes your family. I have no doubt about that, and and everyone that works within the industry will say that to the point where it sounds cliche, but it's absolutely true. Mm. I see all of my chefs and the front of house team far more than I see anyone else in my life. Mm. I live with uh, my brother. and Shout out Steve. Yeah, shout out, <laughs> shout out Steve, quite rightly. Um, doing big things, doing a PhD. Um, and he's very busy himself. Um, and we hardly see each other.
0: Because mm. you, you, your times don't clash. Pa- exactly. They don't cross over. Passing,
1: mm. ship, passing ships in the night. Mm. Um, so because of that, you are only ever surrounded with people that suffer in very similar ways to you and have, and have similar afflictions, but in an environment where showing weakness is exact, well, showing what you would perceive to be weakness um, is, you know, very much frowned upon. Mm -hmm. There's nothing, there is, there's nothing weak about being honest and frank about, you know, your mental health or any other situations that you have in your life. And I think that's why doing things like this is, is great. And I hope that off the back of it, you know, it might encourage chefs out there who may listen to be more honest with themselves. Mm. But in an environment where it's perceived to be weak to, you know... Be honest. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to to be honest. Because everyone else is suffering similarly to you. Mm. There is this idea that, you know, if everyone else can, you know, grin and bear it and buckle down, I should be able to too. Mm. You know, that persists throughout the culture... And when you're only ever hanging out with those people, um, you it's know an endless it's, cycle, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It becomes it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy that everyone's going to suffer from the same issues, but never feel like they should be the ones to complain about it. And when you couple that with the fact that you know you're working such long days, that at the end of this busy dinner service, you're absolutely wired. Mm. You know, you 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 need some form of decompression, oftentimes that is like it would be for anyone going to the pub. Mm. Um, So we had our local joint uh, back in the day, Millers, and everyone would sort of descend on there. And we were working in Kings Cross at the time. So big hospitality uh, area and sort of everyone would descend on this little pub. And it'd be absolutely raucous. Mm. Um, Any night of the week, um, I think they were always open till three.
0: God knows how. On a weekday? Yeah. Well, wow. oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah, a yeah. student night. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> exactly, exactly that, you know, and, and if Miller's shut at two or three and you still wanted to drink, you'd go to Hurricane Room, the pool bar mm. over the road, and mm. you could drink. Oftentimes, it, it wasn't unheard of to have people drink from the minute they finished work right the way through the night. And come back at into at work. Room yeah. and, go, and go straight back into work. <sighs> Uh, you know, it, it it wasn't common, but it, it wasn't unheard of either. Mm. And, uh, you know, there were instances where where I would, you know, be drinking until five in the morning. I remember the restaurant manager uh, had a leaving do, and it was just absolutely insane. I remember I woke up <laughs> at a bus stop <laughs> uh, outside Hackney Central Station, and I was living at home at the time
0: not an ideal place you want to be waking no, up outside no no, no not, not,
1: not at all in, in retrospect even to be honest with you at the time I was like this has gone really bad <laughs> this has gone really badly I woke up I had 23 missed calls Jesus from Christ. my mum like where are you sort of like in an absolute state uh, got an Uber got home at half past six slept for half an hour and then, back then went back work. into work wow that is ridiculous, you know, and it's not it's there's absolutely nothing glamorous about that mm. it was it was just about the worst thing and the worst I've ever felt in my life mm. um but that that is gives you a sense of how this kitchen monoculture can be mm. you know you you just God forbid you called in sick the day after the restaurant managers. Leaving you mm. You just don't do that. Mm. Because everyone knows where you've been. And it's different in a kitchen as well... Because you're letting someone down. Mm. There isn't... It's not like you can... Catch up with your work later in the week. You're needed mm. there... And you're needed to work. Um,
0: so you just have to be there. And you turn up and it's relentless. Mm. Um, yeah. Mm. You've, been, you've been a head chef yourself... For about a year or so now. And you said in the article... The notion that I was once treated like that and it never did did me any harm, in reference to the story that you you talked we talked about earlier, yeah. And you said is one that even I, about to become head chef, have to fight hard to resist. How have you tried to be a different type of head chef to those who have come before you in previous jobs and those you've you've also seen on in in media and and, and other things like that?
1: It's actually been
0: easier than perhaps
1: I thought it could be in what um, sense in the sense that i i found it i found the solution to it to be quite simple in that i always try and treat my chefs with respect mm. um and that is the foundation of all of our relationships in the kitchen and that's actually something that's not as common as it it, it should be at all um in the industry you know i run the kitchen based on on different values it's not based upon precision and being regimented for me those are things that follow and what
0: they're complemented by people yeah, working well yes working exactly hard, i think in the right I, I think those are things yeah.
1: that come when when you treat people with respect in a fun and enjoyable environment mm. you know when everyone feels invested in the running of the kitchen that's when you get precision and that's when people are regimented and, and everything works. Mm. Um, but that's based upon
0: respect. Mm. And finally, you, you talked about support structures on how to deal with all this pressure as a head chef. You know, for your case, you have a great group of friends whom we can, we're going to give a little couple shout outs to now. Um, but there's also other outlets for chef to go to if they're struggling as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I keep a small circle mainly because time constraints mean that managing a social circle any bigger than that it just wouldn't be possible Mm. um but I've got a really solid and strong group of boys um who sort of keep me on the straight and narrow mm. um but also you know we have enough fun to blow off some steam as well mm. my brother steve uh my oldest 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 friend uh johnny mm. who you know as fletch from oh Uni.
0: fletch i we're... do know him as fletch <laughs> yeah 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 Shout Yeah, out you fletch. know him
1: as fletch Shout out fletch um no, actually, don't shout out Fletch. He's always Johnny. Never, 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 never. But was yeah, he we, Fletch at uni then? He was Fletch at oh, uni. Oh, I
0: see, because he, he, he introduced himself to me as Fletch. Well, okay, so he it goes back a little bit
1: further than that. He was Fletch from uh, secondary school, sort of mainly sort of college time. Mm. But I've known him since we were like three. Since we were like oh, okay. three or four years yeah, old. yeah, yeah, yeah. So... We went our separate ways, uh, secondary school, we went to different schools, mm. da, 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 always obviously stay in touch to each other all the mm. time, but I had no idea of this culture of flesh that was going on behind the scenes, mm. until we got to uni, he started introducing himself to so I was like, no. <laughs> that's not your name, that's your surname. So, uh, so, our, so our, close, our close circle at uni would call him Johnny, mainly because... I called him Johnny, mm. but then outside of that, sort of the football circle, yeah, and yeah, that, yeah. yeah they, he's fletched all of them. So that's why you know him as that, but never, never that to me. But I've mm. got uh, another mutual friend of ours, Jislano, uh, aka Jiz, aka okay, Jiz, yeah, the um, man, yeah, great guy. You know, they all keep me on the straight and narrow. And I've got uh, a couple of other friends, Ads and Genti, and we sort of have a real close circle, um, which helped. And then obviously, I couldn't forget. Uh, my girlfriend, Izzy, um,
0: who's important in pretty much every aspect of my life. Mm. Um, she's great. And how does she support you in, in in the work that you do and sort of those unsociable hours and perhaps when you sort of come home and, and you might say, like, it's not gone well today or or it's gone really well today, you know, how does she support you? She... Her,
1: the, the biggest support and the way in which she's been best is that she's never question the hours that I do never asked for more I I I try and I, I give her pretty much as much time uh, and, and pretty much all the free time that I have because that's what she deserves because she never asked for more she's incredibly supportive mm. um, she's understanding tolerant patient she's a good listener she puts up with a lot of my BS um, <laughs> but not too much of my BS that she lets me <laughs> get away with, uh, get away with whatever I want, which is what I need because I, 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 I know that I have a tendency to, uh, to take things too far. So, no, she's, she's great for, for keeping me on the straight and narrow and keeping me level. Um, but not, not everyone can have that unit around them, mm. uh, working in the kitchen. And there are, uh, things out there, uh, for, um, for chefs if they feel like they need uh, a bit more support. There was a a website called Chefs with Issues uh, that was launched in 2015 um, by Kat Kinsman and it sort of gives a sanctuary for chefs and hospitality workers. They can Mm. share things anonymously, um, including uh, mental health surveys that they can fill out that might uh, allow them to access more help that they need. But also things like Vent, you know, Vent is a great, fantastic platform and I I rave about it um, for anyone that I think could benefit from it. And actually, we can all benefit from it, to be honest with you. I think that's the the thing that has has really been hammered home to me. The more that I think about these issues is we can all benefit from it. But um, just any platform that allows people to speak openly, I Mm -hmm. think is great.
0: Excellent, and we'll put a link to where any if there's any chefs listening to this and they feel like they're struggling or they need a place to vent um, and talk about what's going on in their professional life, we'll put a link to uh, where you can access um, Chefs with Issues in the pod. talked about the restaurant industry now rob i think what would be really good is to talk about your own cookery journey so i think the best question to kick off with is what made you get into cooking and how did you discover your love for it um
1: it's it's quite a uh, quite a simple one for me i i loved eating <laughs> um so did i back in the day ask paula if i, probably,
0: I probably <laughs> want to put on a few more pounds <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, I think that's that's the unfortunate consequence of, of having a love of eating, is that you're always uh, inclined to put on a bit of... Uh,
0: Self-aware. Yes, yeah, yeah
1: absolutely. But um, no, for me, it, it naturally followed that if I love to eat, I should learn to cook. And that started off really basic, you know, super basic things, just helping mum in the kitchen at home. My mum's a great cook, but she's a great cook. She, she's a great family cook in that she cooked because she needed to feed the family. Mm. Um, you know, she's a working mum, worked hard, long days, and then would come home and cook something fresh and delicious. Um, and that's fantastic. But I tried to take a little bit of the load off of her by just giving her a hand. And that's how I sort of started to get engaged mm. with with cooking. And then it wasn't really until I went to uni and had the freedom of my own kitchen and the ability to cook what I wanted when I wanted. Mm. Unfortunately, the consequence of that is that I spent loads of money. <laughs> probably more money on... am uh, probably the only person to have gone to uni in the last 10 years to spend more money on their food than their drink. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I ate relatively extravagantly. Mm. Um, I worked all through uni pretty much to to feed my eating habits. You know, I was eating sea bass and, and, and duck breast for a unit, it was ridiculous. But the benefit of that is that I I learned the basics and uh I took inspiration from everywhere. I, you know, watched television cooking programs exhaustively. Um you know what ones? Oh it's hard Ready to know Steady them down. Or... Do you know what? Ready, Steady, Cook was, was more of like an after-school thing. Yeah, when it I was, when it? I was quite, When I was quite young, me and mum mm. would sit down and watch Ready, Steady, Cook. Shout out Ainsley Harriet. Shout out Ainsley. Always, always need to shout out Ainsley Harriet, trailblazing black chefs in Britain. And I say that with no irony at all, because there aren't many...
0: Um, even to this day, problem? No, there no, absolutely. In the UK, in the um, UK
1: at least, certainly not that have influenced popular culture. You know, no, there are nowhere near. We've got chefs like
0: Michael Keynes who people are probably uh, with an S and not not the. Uh,
1: That's right, yeah, the not, East not, End not actor. No, no, no. no, 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 no. <laughs> His name is Michael Cain's, uh and not a lot of people know that he's a really good chef. Um, that was a terrible Michael kane Cain, Michael Caines crossover reference, <laughs> but I'm not sure many I people pick up so. on. Um but um yeah we've we've got a couple of, of, of black chefs that are sort of blazing the, uh, a, a trail and achieving mission stars, Michael Keynes, Paul Ainsworth, um but none have influenced and had as much impact on popular culture as Ainsley Harriet, so mm. for me, big, big legend. Um but then James Martin, i have watched a lot of Saturday Kitchen, Michelle Rue Jr. from Master Chef from mm. Master Chef the Professionals. Anthony Bourdain was a big one for me as well. Mm-hmm. Shout out Anthony Bourdain, um, particularly pertinent um, in the context of a mental of health. Of
0: course, definitely, uh, massive,
1: massive loss. Chat, just yeah, and I, I, think that he's a great
0: example of how no one, no one seemed like he, no one seemed to think that they knew he was struggling. Did yeah, they? no,
1: no one can escape the grips. You know, the, the job that you consider to be the perfect job and his job was essentially go to different places and destinations around the world and eat and talk about it. And he did it in such a fantastic and relatable way that everyone loved him mm. for it. You know, someone that, someone that had that dream job could be so afflicted, and he took his own life uh, in, I think, 2017. Yeah, it was around a few, uh, so a few years might now, not it? Might yeah. been, might, it might have even been last year. Um, again, someone fact check that. We can fact check that, that. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. But yeah, an absolute real, real hero that that dealt with the industry in a really relatable way. Mm. Um, and he started off, you know, as a as a really seasoned veteran uh, line cook. And he talks about it in his book, Kitchen Confidential, which is like the the chef's bible for uh, the restaurant industry, perhaps erring on the side of glamorising it a little bit mm. but um, just yeah what a great guy mm. really uh,
0: he was a, a big inspiration
2: mm.
0: and when you when you're at university with me I used to hear you referred to as the MasterChef by your housemates and, and your mates on nights out and obviously this was before that you applied for MasterChef was this something orig- initially that you know you enjoyed and embraced and you actually used it as inspiration to apply for the show itself or or was it something you sort of had to get used to or perhaps was a bit annoyed by? Because the nickname as its bo- most basic level must have been a huge compliment to your cooking yeah. skills.
1: Yeah, I I, I I, took it on the chin. It was, it was a bit tongue-in-cheek, um, but it came from a loving place. Mm. I think all chefs love to provide, mm. love to make people happy. We're in the pleasure industry mm. um, as much as anything else. And so when I cook at uni... I'd make far too much food and make sure that mainly Johnny and Jiz, who uh, whom I lived with in second year were fed properly um, because they were both guilty of having atrocious eating habits <laughs> um, yeah my mum <laughs> my mum would rinse Johnny out every time she saw him because I, I told her that he was just every night he just had uh, like boiled in a bag chicken or like <laughs>
0: yeah classic protein yeah, and yeah, carbs. yeah 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 just
1: straight straight protein or like you, you'd you always know if Johnny was awake in the morning because he'd be frying bacon <laughs> and then frying the bread for the bacon sandwich <laughs> just like I'm bulking I'm bulking and to be fair to him he was skinny as anything when he started uni and uh wasn't by the time he left but yeah atrocious eating habits so I'd always cook loads and make sure that those two were fed and they'd always hoover up anything that
0: was left over mm. And did this nickname sort of give you any self extra self belief or sort of a self esteem boost to make you want to apply for MasterChef in the first place, or was it something you were always sort of considering doing?
1: No, I had to be really, I had to be really pushed into doing it by a couple of factors. Um, and what were they? It was the fact that I was getting to the end of uni, and I realised that there wasn't a job. Waiting at the end of it mm. for an English literature graduate. I suppose um, a lot of humanities degrees geez. people will attest. To.
0: Well, that's exactly it. It was like that real. Was that a bit of anxiety for you then, sort of knowing that there wasn't a sort of magical job at the end of the rainbow waiting for you when you came out? Or I don't think I don't think it 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 didn't make me as anxious as it should have done.
1: Mm. And actually, you're quite a relaxed, laid back sort of guy. I so. I I am, and uh, it it made my parents very anxious. Okay. <laughs> I can say that much, and they didn 't feel like i was I was motivated and to be fair, I think in retrospect they were right mm. i didn 't know what I wanted to do, and doing English in the first place um, as can can be the case for humanities' uh, subject. Uh, people that study humanities um, was a way of kicking the can down the road mm. when it came to actually thinking about what I wanted to do in the long term, because I just didn't know. Mm. I just didn't know. Um, and I don't think that's unreasonable to think of, you know, an 18-year-old when you're picking your, uh, you know, what you want to study at university. Um, it's not unreasonable to think that they won't know what they want to do with, you know, the rest of your life. I say in inverted commas because no one stays in a job or a career that long these days. Mm. Um, but it was, it was that coupled with uh, my girlfriend at the time, pretty much forcing me to mm. uh, to apply mm. um, which in retrospect paid off mm. um, and is, is the one enduring thing of our relationship that I'm grateful for
0: mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, talk to me through the MasterChef journey now, right from when you sort of first applied to the semi-final itself, mm. where you got through to, as I'm sure there are a few hidden realities of the show that perhaps listeners might not know about, some, some intricacies and some, you know, little gems where I, I think people would be really interested to know. Yeah, there's always a few,
1: there's always a couple of things that people are super interested or like the first things that they ask. Um, and I remember like as the show was airing, and people would sort of see your face on the telly one day and then see you on the street the next day. You know, I had that brief period, I guess you could say my five minutes, um, but where people would instantly recognise you. Mm. Uh, Ed, Quite a think,
0: recognisable geezer as well, like yes, very tall.
1: that's, that's true. <laughs> and I looked, oh, well, I am horrendously tall, but it's not often that I get to see that, um, but I certainly saw that at MasterChef, because I don't think any of the last... Twelve in that year's competition were above six foot mm. at all. So I look like a different species. I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm six foot five for for those that do not know, um, which is which is
0: bloody tall. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's just that's past tall and bloody tall. Yeah, 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 yeah that's yeah, the category.
1: Yeah. We're 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 into bloody tall territory there. Um, yeah. uh, I remember we did a we did a, a cook off where it was the last twelve contestants and. We all cooked one dish, and it took 90 minutes to, to record the judging. Wow, you know, that's got a to, long time. You know, John and Greg have got to say what they think, and then they've got to say what they think again, but in a slightly different way if they want to use that in the edit, and then they've got to take shots of the food in every different possible way. Um, they, As much as they're judging what they taste in the finished product, they're... Looking at how you've gone about making it and making certain judgments about you know the quality of the way in which you have done a certain thing, and how that they're sort of using that to interpret how it would have tasted, you know, served straight up. Mm. Um, so it's not a bad, it's not a poor way of judging the quality of things, but it's not the it's most. Not ideal. Ab- it's not the most yeah. appetizing way to. Uh, they're, they're, their job's not quite as glamorous as, as people might expect. The other thing is you just spend so much time waiting around.
2: Mm.
1: You know, we spent 90 minutes waiting for that tasting and you've got to stand there. It's like purgatory sometimes, to be honest with you. You're sitting in that green room and the camera crew will film you doing some waiting shots. You know, it's literally just everyone sitting inside and it's looking around the corners of the room. Um, you know, and then you're doing interview after interview after interview. Um, Trying to not say the same thing over and over again. Mm. Trying to bring something different to it. And those are pretty much the only taxing elements of it. Apart from that,
0: I loved every second of it. Mm. It was just the best thing I've ever done. Mm. And I remember one specific um, episode. I think it was either when you were just starting out or whether it was when you you were into the second round where you made a dish... And John and Greg said, this is good, this is good, but this is where you need to improve. And then you came back and you made the second dish and they were like, you've gone back, you've listened to what we were saying, mm. you've improved upon it and you've taken, those, you've taken that into consideration yeah. and implemented it. Was that a big moment for you on the show? Yeah, absolutely. I was, I'd say probably more so than most people that entered the
1: competition learning on the job. Mm. I was 21, um, straight out of uni, limited cooking experience. In retrospect, I don't really know why I was there. Mm. I, I guess it's because I, I, I guess I can cook, um, which I've, I've sort of come to terms with mm. by this point. Um, but, yeah, that, that was a big thing for me, to, to, to have that positive feedback. And it was an interesting challenge because we had to cook what was our signature dish Mm. I didn't have you know I was 21 I I don't think I'd cooked the same thing twice ever I was always trying to cook something different Mm. I didn't have a signature dish Um, but they sort of analyzed that and uh, a couple of people went through just off the back of that and then there were four of us left Um, and and we had to use the same primary ingredients mine was sea bass and mussels but reinvent our dish and bring back something completely different as you say um, so, so to hear them to to get that positive feedback was great.
0: Mm. Um, when you when you made it to the semi final as well, what was that feeling like? It was all surreal from from
1: mm. from the start to the end. It was the most surreal, overwhelming thing I've ever done. You y- you you sort of just go with the flow. Um, it's only in retrospect that I've come to appreciate that. It was a great achievement. Um, at the time, I felt like I'd run my course. And it was quite nice to to know... Uh, Tony always says that he was completely shocked. Because I, I went out of the competition on the first day that we didn't film together. Mm. We'd been on the... Uh, Tony, who I, this is Tony, who I work with now at, at Copper and Ink. Um, we've great friends through the whole... Competition filmed with each other on the
0: first day and were right there, as I say, until mm-hmm. until the last. Some people don't realise that you're actually quite good mates, most of you, the ones who are competing, even though you're competing against each other as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: It was a real convivial atmosphere. There was no concern that, you know, you were all competing against one another. It was, it was such a lovely environment to be in and actually quite unique to our year. I've heard sort of things of uh, previous and, and years since where the atmosphere has been a little bit more tense and it has been more of a competition. We mm. all really got on and, and socialised outside of the competition. But it was nice to hear from Tony uh, that he thought I was going to be in the final three. Mm. I never thought that I, you know, had those kind of chops at that point mm. at all. And I, I was just having so much fun with it. It was never a competition for me. Mm. So getting to the semi-final, I felt like I'd run my lot. I felt like that was great pretty much a fair reflection of where I was and it was good enough to get me a job in quite a good kitchen afterwards. So I have
0: no regrets about it. It's just the best thing I ever did. Mm. And coming out of MasterChef now, the momentum behind you, what, and that new determination to succeed, you know, finding out that you had this talent, you had this gift and you, you needed to, you wanted to sort of use it now for your career. What was the first thing you did? I always thought that I'd, off the
1: back of it, Launch some kind of food writing, food journalism career mm. that was always preferable uh, to me over a career in the kitchen because I knew all of the 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 rigor mm. and the, the, of of being a chef. I kind of stumbled into working in the kitchen in the end. To be honest, with you I was followed by uh, followed on Twitter by the the person that ran Marcus Warren's HR and I asked just on the off chance if I could go and you know work in one of the kitchens for a day um, see how it went just for a bit more experience and that turned into that being a trial shift before I knew it and I was like oh okay um, great and after that trial shift I was offered a job and I was like um, yeah sure uh, I've, English literature is not going to get me a job mm. and here's you know what was £18,000 at the time Uh, being offered to me. I was like, yeah, I'll take that. Mm. Um, So I kind of had to leave... At that point, I kind of had to leave MasterChef behind. Mm. It had gotten me to that point, but in the world of professional kitchens, being on amateur MasterChef carries no clout
0: whatsoever. Um, So it was just on to the next stage, Mm. and that was it. There's one before we go into like your your mixed heritage and how that factors into your role as a chef and then your, the experiences that you brought from that, mm. there's one particular story that I've just remembered about sort of experiencing the, the 15 minutes of fame. And it, I remember when it was, it was in our final year, I think I was in second year and you were in mm. third year or maybe <laughs> the other way around. And... You said you were at Wildlife Festival, which is a festival which was in Brighton, mm. and you were walking about, and there was this group of like fifteen-year-olds, sixteen-year-olds who like completely lost their shit when they saw it was you. That was the most. That was the most bizarre thing, I uh,
1: yeah I ever experienced. It would have been after uni. I, it would have, it would have been a couple of years. I think, um, maybe twenty sixteen, twenty yeah twenty sixteen. Somewhere, okay. somewhere after Master Chef aired. and. Yeah, that was that was weird. I I I don't really know how cuz I was absolutely wasted. As <laughs> as you should quite rightly be at any music festival. I think it's <laughs> I think it's fair to say. Um and and this uh, God only knows why the kids that young were at wildlife in the first place, but you know, uh I asked where the parents were. <laughs> but. but they they recognized me. Um and it was just odd. But um you quickly move on from that 15 minutes, you know, mm. your, your, your star shines and then it doesn't shine so bright. Mm. And you kind of have to justify your existence in another way and you, mm. know, you just buckle down in your work. You know, copper and ink now is my sole focus, mm. um, which is great. You know, it's going really well, getting great reviews and great feedback and just establishing yourself is such a hard thing to do in the industry.
0: Um, but we found our little place, and mm. it's it's going okay mm. I think one thing now which can't be overlooked in your success Rob is your mixed heritage and the fact that, as we've said previously there are there are very few prominent b a m e chefs um in the UK, sort of media-wise uh, 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 and celebrity-wise, celebrity mm. apart from, you sort of discussed recently, the boy, um, Ainsley Harriot. Were you conscious of this when going into MasterChef and also were, when you know, when you're working your way through the industry as to how you were perceived and probably treated because of it? Or was it something you never really thought about? It was, it was something I never really thought about. Um, it, you, you tend not to be conscious,
1: constantly conscious of, of your background. You kind of live your life as you. Mm. Uh, it it has had influence. I'll never forget. I did a food festival um, demonstration in Alexandra Parks, Park part of Foodies Festival. Mm. Shout out them. You should go to one. They're really fun. Um, but I did a, a, a live cooking demo on stage, and afterwards, uh, uh, a black woman and her two sons came up to me afterwards, and we were just chatting. And she said that they were big fans of, from Master Chef and and that uh, her son wanted to be a chef. Um, and in that interaction, I, I got the sense that I I was a particular... I don't want to say inspiration. I, 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 I don't justify An that. An influence. Yeah. Yeah, let's say influence. I was a particular influence in, in that decision, and that was really important for me. That kind of recalibrated my... my focus... It, in the sense that i am not that common, uh you know prominent black chefs are not that common
2: mm.
1: um, and so subsequently it's something that I do try and encourage and i've I've
0: fought more and written more about race since then mm. and and there's one thing that I really wanted to touch upon as well because. I think when you have anyone who's from a bame background so say for example you are a um a chef who's got an african heritage or mm. a caribbean heritage do you think there's either a conscious bias or an unconscious bias for either people in the media or sort of consumers to associate themselves with the food of that heritage so if they were say an african chef they people might think oh they're only great at making african food and not other cuisines
1: i think that that's definitely possible i think you always have to try not to be pigeonholed, and you always mm. have to fight against that. I think the good thing about British cuisine is that unless you're cooking ultra traditional, you know, suet puddings and things like that, the chances are that you're begging, borrowing, and stealing mm. from other cultures. Um, and so you can have influence from all over without being pigeonholed for cooking african and caribbean cuisine i'd i i i consciously do not cook any afro caribbean food at the restaurant mainly to honor that cuisine mm. because it's it's a cuisine that's built around the food of people that do not have a lot mm-hmm. first of all mm-hmm. um and also, it's always best represented in its authenticity, mm. in its authentic state. Mm. I I can't make a curry goat more delicious than it just being a curry goat. Mm. And that doesn't fit in with the refined dining style that we try and have at Copper and Ink. Mm. So I wouldn't want to pay lip service to something that is as delicious as that. Mm. Um, saying that star food sometimes i'll do jerk chicken and uh and festival and rice mm. and peas and we'll all sit down as a team and enjoy that but i can't make that any better by refining it mm. that it, it, it is what it is mm. and so that's more for me outside of the restaurant that's the that's the food that i truly like to eat mm. you know on my days off
0: mm. And what more do you think needs to be done to encourage more b a m e chefs to get involved, carve out their own paths in the industry like you have? you know are you conscious of your position like we said previously in trying to inspire others um Yes, I am, and
1: it's something that I would like to engage with more, and I think that we need to have a complete rethink of how we uh we need to have a complete rethink of our food culture in this country mm. um, top down I think that that starts in school I think that we need to have a much more healthy approach to uh, the way that we think about cooking and the importance of you know eating healthy I think everyone understands that that is a good thing now mm. um, but I don't think that that's actually brought into practice and I think that Particularly for uh, BAME people, um, you know, you just have to keep setting a good example. Mm. Um, being prominent, showing that it's possible. Uh, saying that, I don't know if I'd recommend anyone getting into, the, uh, <laughs> getting into the restaurant industry. I might not be the best advocate in that sense. Um, you know, it is, it is hard work. And mm. I would say if, if you feel like you'd be better qualified as a lawyer, or a doctor, then perhaps, not to say that those aren't hard things at all, um, but they certainly... You need to commit. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. That are yeah. commitments. I'd say that you're you're better serving society by being either of those
0: things. Well, perhaps not a lawyer. Certainly, mm.
1: certainly a doctor. Mm.
0: And if there are any, you know, um, BAME people listening to this pod and are thinking about becoming a chef and, you know, want to commit to it and, and want to carve themselves yeah. out as a career, yeah. what advice would you give them?
1: I would advise them to get in touch with me. First of all, please, I would gladly be able to, uh, I would would gladly listen to anything uh, that you had to say or any uh, advice you might be seeking, I'll be very happy to give it. I think that 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 is something that's quite important is establishing that network and providing an opportunity for people to get in touch. The other thing I would say is get in touch with any chef that you admire, mm. um, it, there's no fully staffed restaurant in London. So if you're really wanting to commit to working in a kitchen, you don't have to go to catering college. Mm. It can be a good way, it can be a good in, but it's not absolutely necessary. Get in touch with a restaurant through their HR team, through the chefs directly. Um, dedicate yourself to it. Buy chef whites, buy a good set of knives and show that you're willing to learn no one expects you to turn up and be brilliant um, and if you do all of those things and you dedicate yourself to it it can be a fulfilling
0: career mm. and just finally now looking forward to, to with Copper and Ink what exciting stuff has it got coming up and uh, and what are your ambitions as head chef for it wow
1: I, I, I really think I really think the sky is the limit for Copper and Ink at the moment we've spent our first we've been open now we'll be, will have been open for a year uh, on the 8th of December which might reveal when we're recording this mm. um, so we'll, we'll most likely have been out for, uh, open for a year by the time that you guys are listening and we've really established ourselves in the local community we're down in Blackheath um, which is a fantastic, fantastic place to open a restaurant because there is a real community vibe it's mm. a little oasis in London uh, everyone knows what's going on in Blackheath Village, um, and that fostered interest in the restaurant from day one. From the day, from the minute we opened our doors, uh, you know that interest was there, and we were full, and we were serving people. But we were learning the whole time. We started off, and you know, we were very green, and we learned an incredible amount in the first few months that we were open. And now it's about opening and broadening our horizons drawing people in from London, from from the centre. Uh, We've got the confidence that we justify our existence. Now, we we know we're putting out good food, we're getting lots of good reviews. Um, So I think I'd like some kind of accolade to put next to the name in the next year or so, whether that be a couple of AA Rosettes, one or two. Um, That's really the direction that we're pushing in. That's a sort of a, a sister... Or oh, a, a, a parallel organisation to the Michelin star. Mm. Michelin stars being, you know, far out of my contemplation for the time being. Mm-hmm. As much as that would be lovely, um, but you know, a couple of AA Rosettes would be great. Um, just to raise awareness of the brand, mm. get ourselves out there. Um, yeah, but I think the sky's the limit. Mm-hmm. I think that we've got a really, really solid team in the kitchen now. Um, we're putting out good food, and I would
0: implore everyone listening to this mm. to come down and where can they go if you want to find out more about Copper and Ink uh,
1: we're on all socials um, we're at Copper Inc on Twitter and at Copper and Ink on Instagram I do believe um, you can find my socials at, at Robert D.A. Parks that's my middle surnames people often get confused <laughs> <laughs> think it's Robert Daparks <laughs> and and that is a terrifying thing that I hadn't Imagined uh, when I first set these up, but I'm Robert at Robert DA Parks on all socials. I post uh, all about the restaurant, and uh, my Instagram is entirely food from the restaurant as well. Mm. Um, Try and you know just build that brand and keep serving good food.
0: another topic i was really keen to speak to you about rob and it's one that we've briefly touched on already which is identity now you did an interview with a brilliant journalist um called natalie morris who writes for the metro for her shout series. Out, shout out natalie absolutely lovely lovely um, for her series mixed up which is an in-depth look at people of mixed heritage their stories and seeks to break down the stereotypes and biases that people may have about them or have had in the past yeah. So first of all, just tell me about why you wanted to do the interview and what message do you want, did you want to convey? I, I've, I was really
1: motivated to do it purely because it's not something that I had spent a lot of time contemplating. Mm. And as soon as the opportunity pre- presented itself... I believe I tagged you. You did. You did indeed. <laughs> you did indeed. Um, yeah, purely off the back of that. The moment the opportunity presented itself after you, after you tagged me... Um, and I s- opened my mind up and started thinking about these issues. It it I had a complete compulsion to do it. I was sort of really motivated mm. um, to explore
0: these issues. Mm and we're obviously recording in your flat and you've got a picture there the listeners can't see but there's a, there's a framed picture of you with your dad mm-hmm. um as a child um growing up mixed heritage yeah. with your younger brother steve um obviously comes with a huge amount of complexities nuances and experience that i can i can try and understand but i can't relate to that's yeah. just that this just be me, me being honest but i can certainly try and understand it now now first of all just just tell me about your mother and father's sort of contrasting racial identities mm-hmm. and how they combined to influence your own and how this identity has shaped your life i think as you just found it's a minefield mm. <laughs> tripping, mm. over, tripping over yourself Tripping over myself already yeah um yeah
1: i think because being mixed race is a relatively new construct in the mainstream and i think it's the last hundred or so years maybe, exactly yeah. yeah it's not it's not something that you ever really contemplate it's a pure byproduct of the world being so much more integrated now than it than it was previously um but you know you're you're constantly trying to find or strike a balance at least i found when i was growing up of where you should lie i say inverted commas Mm. on some kind of parameter of race Mm. you know where you know there's some kind of ideal in the middle where you both reflect your your white culture again. There's going mm. to be a lot of inverted commas in the mm. course of this conversation because mm. it, is, it, it, is yeah. it is that kind of topic and you're conversely black culture and trying to strike that balance and sit in the middle. But um, for, me, for me specifically, it was quite an interesting one because I feel like my dad had already wrestled with a lot of these issues. And your dad's black and your mum's white, Yeah, should say. Say, yes, yeah. I sh- yeah. yeah, I should say. So my dad, being black Jamaican, but born in Britain,
2: mm.
1: had already... Fought the battles of being both Jamaican and also British.
0: Was he in part of the Windrush generation, or was it was that his parents? His parents, his parents, his parents were, would okay. have been
1: Windrush generation. Okay. So, um, he was born here in sixty five. Okay. I think he grew up in largely in Dagenham. You know, very traditional Eastern white culture, but mm. that started to have an influx of uh, people of ethnic minorities. Um, he. He's a man that both reflects his Jamaican culture and his British culture. And so he was a, a, a great uh, role model for me in considering my own race because mm. I could see how it could be done, how you could both represent your Jamaican heritage and your British mm. heritage. And
0: there's no right or wrong way to do it. No, is no, there? no, no, not it's, at all. Yeah, exactly. But you, you, just you took
1: the, your lead from him. Exactly. Yeah. You just find the way that works for you. Um, Mum's other of the family, obviously, white uh, white English. She was born in Um But she's incredibly proud of, of where she's from mm. as well. And so I had a strong sense of the fact that, you know, understanding where you're from and
0: how that can influence who you are is important. Mm. And growing up in a school what we went to, I went there for two years and you went there for seven, that was predominantly South Asian. Mm. Um, so myself and you were very much in the minority. Yeah. Um, as ethnic groups, um, which might be odd for some of the listeners here, especially if they didn't, if they don't, um, grew, if they didn't grow up in multicultural environments. Mm. Just tell me about how your mixed heritage fitted into that and how you view, viewed the world around you as a result when you were growing up. It was quite difficult.
1: Um, mm. Before I joined uh, Ilford County, uh, where we uh, both went... I went to a school in Walthamstow, mm. East London, North East London. And there, I would say that was a very multicultural experience. Mm. Uh, in the sense that there was a real broad range mm. of cultures. And there wasn't really one predominant um, background. Mm. And I had a lot of uh, mixed race friends from a young age. And that was a really positive thing to have. Um, and I think there was a, a, a sense in which being mixed race at that time was it almost immediately made you cool for some reason.
0: Right. I'm not as a as a subconscious thing, as people viewed or
1: Yeah, I think I think so. I I think so. Maybe it was just different and new um, mm. and you know a, a mix of cultures and it was most often uh, white and black Caribbean mm. as well. So that particular yeah yeah, really, um, yeah exactly ethnic makeup as well yeah exactly so to have that support of lots of friends from that same background was great and then to go from there to an environment where actually it's not that multicultural it's just you know a, a, a dominant culture that isn't that isn't white that British. isn't white yeah. British yeah um, was was quite jarring at that age and is it a culture shock for you? Um, yes and yes and no I think when you're, I think it's human nature to, of course, you go from primary to secondary school is massive. Yeah, 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 to to, to feel that, but also it's human nature to just get on with one another. Mm. Certainly at school at quite a young age, I I, I felt that anyway, obviously people have different experiences, but you know, you find common ground, um, and ultimately your kids, you bond over football
0: and, you know, those stereotypes of boys, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah,
1: exactly. Um, And so the culture tends not to have such a a, a huge influence, or at least I didn't think so at the time. In retrospect, I think it would have been beneficial to have
0: been able to engage with people that you have more in common Mm. with uh, culturally. Mm. Uh, And you make the point in the article, which I've actually heard from several other friends who are mixed race, um, that you felt, and I quote, neither... Felt black enough, nor white enough for anyone. Now, for those who don't really understand what that means, just enlighten them for me. Yeah, it's it's something that you know I've I've heard verbatim from exactly verbatim as I knew several friends who've said that they were like who are who especially from your background who've said you know if they were if they were um, mixed race and and Afro Caribbean and white or or African and white they'd say my black friends thought I was too white Mm. and my white friends thought I was too black. In inverted commas. Yeah, it's really difficult. For me, it's, it's sadly tied up in all
1: kinds of uh, self-inflicted racism. Mm. There was this idea, I'm quite well-spoken, or at least I've been told on mm. many occasions um, by black friends of mine who didn't consider me to speak black enough for them.
0: It's like that Fresh Prince episode, isn't it? With well, Carlton.
1: E- well, exactly. Yeah. Well, exactly that. You know that 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 the Fresh Prince is a really good distillation of the black experience mm. and
0: black class. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah Exactly. Mm. It's it, it for me. That was a really important show growing up. I love it for all kinds of reasons. It's it's it, not only is it hilarious, but when it it's se- when way it's serious, tackled serious issues. That's exactly it. When it is serious, it was a really serious show. Mm. Um, and so the idea of, you know, not speaking black enough and actually drilling down into what mm. that means is that mm. you're well-spoken, as if black people can't be well-spoken, you know. So it, it's, it's tied to loads of, unfortunately, either racist or self-internalised like, racist mm. ideas about what black people or white people should and shouldn't be. Mm. Um, and to be sort of caught up in the middle of that was quite difficult. Mm. Um it takes a while to get your head around mm. as I say, thankfully, my dad was a great shining example of avoiding all of those stereotypes or if if you didn't avoid them, not caring about them, mm. just finding your own lane mm. and being yourself mm. uh and and at that point, what 's important uh Comes to the forefront, you you get an idea of the fact that you can only be yourself.
0: Mm. And one example of this, which you talk about, uh, is when you say how your black friends would say you were posh in inverted. in yeah. quotes because yeah, yeah, you con- because you contributed in classes or you spoke articulately. You know. what was that like when you when you had those sort of barbs aimed at you? Whether it was whether it was inverted commas racial banter or it was actually something more uh, abusive. How did that make you feel? It was quite difficult to get your head around at the time. Mm. You start
1: to question what's important. You start to question, you know, how important being successful is. Uh, whether it's more important to fit in with what people consider you should or shouldn't be, than it is to just actually be successful and do work at school. Mm. Um,
0: and it, it, you you wrestle you wrestle with it.
2: Mm.
0: I did wrestle with it at the time. Mm. And did the fact that you were one of the very few mixed race, from from African, um, Caribbean, and white backgrounds in Ilford County, do you think that had an impact on you because you didn't have that many sort of peers from your from your same ethnic group to say, "Hang on, is this bullshit, or am I like, do I genuinely have to question this"? Yeah,
1: I think we were speaking about that a little bit before we before we started the pod, <clears throat> just about how you know. The, culture really came to
0: the forefront Mm. of your time. It wasn't always a bad thing as well. There was a lot of banter and stuff, but sometimes it did boil over and there was subconscious biases and you thought, actually, this isn't isn't right. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, And as a final point of discussion, Rob, I wanted to talk about your parents a bit more and how they helped raise you into the man you are today and the influence they had on you. Mm -hmm. Now, we've spoken about it already, but you talk a bit in the article about your dad and how he defined conventions about what it meant to be a black man in Britain, certainly from those sort of racial, con- those racist conventions mm. that, that black men were, were, were supposed to be like in, in inverted commas, especially with his music taste as well. You know, just tell the listeners about how he did that and the impact he had on you and your brother, Steven. I think it's a, speaking about my grad is
1: speaking about my dad is a great example of how I got coerced into playing up to the perception and the conceptions of what you can and can't do as a black person, Mm. I I distinctly remember uh, calling my dad a coconut, which would be like a... a It's a racist term, isn't it, Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's a a derogatory term Mm. used to describe uh, a a black person who, you know... Displays, like, white characteristics or something like that. only displays displays their blackness, in inverted
0: commas... Through the color of their skin, mm. and is in every other way white.
2: Mm. It's used
0: in Asian um, sort of. It, it's it's thing that thing it's prominent as well. I've heard in sort of like South Asian conversations as well. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it, it, I, I, he would he would play
1: um, Dad's musical taste is horrendous. It's still <laughs> it, it's, it it still is today, but. I respect him immensely for it because he made his own lane. Some of it's good. He's just as likely to listen to Mozart and he listens to a lot of classical music as he is likely to listen to Bob Marley. Mm. Um, But he appreciates both of those things. Mm. Um, I, I can't forgive him for liking... Fans like the Cocteau Twins, who, if you... Got an idea who they are. Yeah, well, you're... Which is a rarity for me. You're better off off not knowing. um, (laughs) Just to give, just yeah, maybe your listeners want to, you know, contextualise it by going away and listening to to some of their stuff. It's it's not for me. But the thing is, it was for him. Mm. um, And it didn't make him any less black at all. And it was the point at which I realised that 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 solidified for me
0: my perception of what it was meant to be mixed race or to be honest with you to be from any background mm. and when you were out Boston, as a as a family when you were younger did you ever remember anyone making any comments to you as a mixed race family um, ever, do you ever remember any experiences uh, and did your mum and dad try and shield you from that um It'd be interesting to to to
1: hear from them whether they made a conscious effort to shield us from that. But I certainly don't remember uh, anything to that degree. I think we were sort of the first generation, particularly you know, living in East London mm. uh, around Leyton and Walthamstow kind of area. We were probably the first generation where it was quite common to. It, it wasn't. It wasn't uncommon to have. Uh, a white and, and black parent, mm. particularly from the ethnic background of, you know, white English, white British and, and black Caribbean. So mm. I never really experienced any
0: backlash from that. No, I can't say. Mm. And finally, for anyone who is listening, who is who is mixed heritage, who might be struggling with their identity or might be coming to terms with it or just trying to figure out their way in the world, um, whether that be from African, uh, Caribbean and white or from other mix, uh, different mixes of ethnic groups, what would you say to them? I would say do what makes you happy
1: do what makes you feel confident what you enjoy try not to let those negative outside influences affect you and it's easy to say it's it's very it's more difficult to 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 believe and to execute in your life um there are some great books out there on race uh if you haven't read Noughts and Crosses, Mallory Blackman, it's a great one. Queen.
0: Absolute Queen, big legend. Um, Broke down a lot of barriers, that book, thinking yeah. back, as a children's book, yeah, yeah, as yeah. to what it represented. Absolutely, really.
1: I mean, I, I would highly recommend, if anyone even in adulthood hasn't read that, I think that's a great one. It's you know, It's a real gripping page-turner, but it's based upon really insightful analysis of what it's like to be in a... A system that doesn't support people of certain backgrounds. Mm. Um, yeah, Tony Morrison, uh, read some Toni Tony Morrison, um, just just be you. Enjoy your life, um, find your lane and be confident in it.
2: But I
0: will change for you my love. Right till the end final topic of conversation Rob and it's one that I have with all my special guests which is a general matter about our mental health so firstly how would you say your mental health is at the moment mate
1: yeah I'd say my mental health is is good um and it's it's only really off the back of you know seeing what you do that I've ever really thought about it at all Mm. I tend to be quite a relaxed person which I think Helps in your industry, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, it helps in my industry. I also think it, it, it helps uh, when it comes to considering mental health. You know, I'm not naturally tended towards anxiety. I'm not naturally tended towards uh, other mental health issues. Mm. Saying that, I, I've come to realise that it, mental health issues are things that can affect us all, mm. um, regardless of anything, any of those things. Um, so, a little bit of imposter syndrome. Mm. You know, I'm a 26-year-old head chef running a kitchen. Um, I do... Bear in mind, that's off the back of four years in the industry and having been mm. on chef. Mm. So, I do sometimes find myself questioning where I am mm. and what I'm doing. Sometimes a little bit of existential crisis every yeah, now and yeah, then. Yeah. Sometimes abs- I get that abs- as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and you just need to keep that in check. And mm. I... I, I I've made a much more conscious effort to do that, and I feel like just engaging with what you're doing through event and through various other sources um, it's had a real positive impact on how I can deal with those things
0: mm. and what age do you think you were when you first realized that something that was going on in your head wasn't just a physical thing and actually it was it was in your mind. Um, I would say probably my first job in the industry.
1: Um, I'd have been 21 um working on a unhealthy number of hours and it, it was interesting that you know I, I would be going to work in the dark, you'd be getting up at 7 and mm. coming back at in the dark at midnight mm. um, just not seeing the outside world or communicating with the outside world sort of started to have a, an effect on my mental health, I was feeling quite down feeling quite low um and my initial reaction was to just, you know, grin and bear it and get your head down. Mm. Um, but actually, it was just having a solid social base where you could share those things mm. um, and talk to people was great. Um, that yeah, I would say I would say that was the point at which I I was able to deal with it.
0: Mm. And what what things in life do you find that, that trigger your mental health? So things people might say, sounds, sensations, environments and stuff like that? It tends not to be that
1: outside factors influence me too much. Um, I, I've always found it quite easy to go my way and I try not to let other people get to me mm. uh, in such a way, saying that if the restaurant has like a quiet couple of weeks... I start to wonder if it's something I've done mm. and if people are ever going to come back through the doors. Yeah, and you always get that bit of anxiety, don't and, you? And, yeah. ultimate, and ultimately they do and it's fine. And then you just have to remind yourself that you're doing okay mm. and that people don't hate you. Mm. And, uh, yeah, it, that, in that regard, it takes care of itself.
0: Mm. And what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health, whether it's within... You know, the copper and ink, or outside it, and which ones have you found that worked, and which ones that haven't? Um, I—that's an interesting one. I'm blessed, I think,
1: from my grandfather who was an accountant, with having a very rational mind. Mm. Um, so that's the way in which I approach all of these things. Mm. Uh, I break them down into small sections. Um, I rationalise it analyse the options that are available to me and then I use that to make my decisions. And it's only really in talking to my girlfriend who sometimes I'll approach things in such a blunt and rational manner mm. and she will not appreciate that Very process driven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we both su- like that. Super process driven. But it she to done at this time, this time. She, I've got five minutes yeah. free in October the 28th. <laughs> yeah. it, it's only really in sort of talking, uh, talking to her and uh, if she's got a problem that I realise that not everyone can approach things in that way. And life isn't as
0: simple as that. And yeah. that
1: life can't always be broken down like that. And so in, in that sense that's how I cope with it but I now appreciate that that's not something that can be afforded to everything and it has its own limitations as well
2: mm.
0: and and how do you support your friends in your own social group or professionally as well who may have mental health issues themselves or just maybe struggling with a, at a particular point in their life with their mental health they might have a particular condition that mm. they're living with um how do you support them It works twofold for me, actually. Um, So just explain that and unpack that then.
1: Yeah, uh, it... I I think my friendship group generally provides a good atmosphere for, you know, talking people through their issues. Mm. We're very honest and open. But in the last year, I've also had to manage, um, you know, dealing with my chefs Mm. and... um, you know, making sure that they're on top of their mental health and and making sure that we can facilitate them being healthy and happy, and we try and not overwork people, mm. um, which is you know rare in the industry, but we're very uh, that's that's a, a, a central core of our ethos in the kitchen, um, making sure that they can come and talk to us. You mm. know, it's always about having that shared space. Mm. Um being hospitable, treating people with respect mm. i mean you can't expect people to come to you with their problems if you don't generally treat them well mm. um so that's that's super important
0: mm. Toxic masculinity is something that we try and break down a lot in this pod. But I having the opportunity to talk to you, I really I wanted to try and briefly touch upon it through the lens of your mixed heritage. Mm-hmm. You know, how have you found mental health is viewed both from a, a white British perspective on your mother's side and, and from an from a Caribbean perspective and more specifically a Jamaican perspective on, on your dad's side? Have you have you found any differences and nuances from an ethnic perspective, or do you think it's purely a generational thing? I think there's a definitely degree to which it's a generational thing Mm.
1: um unfortunately my dad's dad passed away when my dad was 15 or 16 Mm. um so i never really saw that old school jamaican perception of masculinity um more specifically sort of quite a toxic masculine Image in my own life, just because that never filtered through to my dad. Mm. Uh, My dad was a great buffer in that. He never, uh, you know, he he doesn't represent that conception of, you know, masculinity that the Jamaican community does hold. And there's no doubt that that does exist. But he was a great buffer in that. so I've actually had quite a balanced um, idea and, and an open idea
0: of what you can be as a man, mm. which is great. And what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health and possibly their mental health issues as well?
1: I think we need to keep following the the great path that's set by things like Ben. For me, that's super important. Keep removing the stigma. We need to uh, and, and we've there's definitely been progress made in that regard, but there is a lot more to do. We need to work towards a common understanding that mental health issues aren't just things that only the man that shouts at birds in the park. That
0: extreme sort of stigmatizing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly.
1: I think there is still an idea. That i that, that idea still does persist, um, that, that, you know, that, no doubt that person is suffering from mental health issues. But you know,
0: there's a story behind that. Person, yeah, exactly, you know, exactly, 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 And if you're
1: feeling anxious, you, you know, you are also suffering from mm. from mental health issues. They come and go, and you know, they affect our lives, and we need to deal with them honestly and sincerely,
2: mm. uh,
1: and you know, providing an environment to do that
0: is is great. Mm. We need to keep doing that. Uh, and why do you think perhaps historically we as men and as a as a gender and as a population have struggled to open up um, or show emotions outside of very stereotypical ones related to men so sexual bagadocio, um naked ambition for mm. the sake of naked ambition Um, aggression, violence, and stuff like that? I think we
1: sometimes forget that we are animals and those are all animalistic traits, but what separates us is that we have the self-awareness to be able to deal with those things. And um, I think as as a gender, we are on... The right track. Mm. I think that possibly only in the last five years we've dealt with this idea of toxic masculinity. Uh, you know, it didn't exist as a term. It was just masculinity. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was, it was ex- just accepted as the norm. Ex- exactly. Exactly. Um, and uh, I think being, uh, being animals, there is an element to which, you know, asserting yourself as the alpha male in a situation, would be the natural instinct. Because it's survival. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. There, there is an element to which that appears natural,
0: but we're now coming to understand the damage that that does. Mm. And as a generation, especially our age bracket, how do you think that we can take the conversation forward and ensure that our sons and daughters either don't experience the things that we did or actually progress the conversation even further? Without wanting to make
1: it political, Mm. um, I think it is is actually quite a political subject. I think that we need much more mental health infrastructure in our society, without a doubt. Um, You know, when it comes to mental health, that is something that's fallen by the wayside. Uh, at, At an unfortunate time where mental health issues have become more accepted as being commonplace and that stigma is being withdrawn, that has occurred at a time where support has been less available due to funding. And it's it's unfortunate because if those things could have, uh, you know, if, if funding had been there for the support at the same time that the stigma was being removed, I have no doubt that we'd be in a better position to... Uh, to provide support for people that need it. So I think going forward, that's something that we need to be conscious of. I think we need more support, more infrastructure um, for people dealing with mental health in their older life, but also, you know, when we're talking about future generations in schools, I think it would be fantastic if uh, every school had someone that was trained and qualified in dealing with these issues, you know, and integrating things into into children's lives from a young age, you know, they're very malleable and they are, have uh, a perception of the world. And if their perception of the world is that people suffer with mental health issues
0: in a generation's time, that will be accepted and commonplace. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this on this edition of the Just Checking In podcast. Rob, thank you so much for being my special guest on this edition's pod and for checking in with me. We finally got this. We finally got it done. Yeah. It feels absolutely great to get it done, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. No, I've absolutely
1: thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you to anyone who is
0: listening this far into it. <laughs> um, very much appreciate that, and hope you've enjoyed it. Thanks so much, mate. As always, thank you to all the vendors who have tuned in. Remember, if you like what you've heard, please give us a share on all your usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Or if you're feeling really generous, write us a review on iTunes. We hope to check in with you again very soon and remember it's always okay to so vent.